Ephesians chapter 6. We'll read verses 1 through 4. Ephesians chapter 6. Follow along as we read Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. May God give us ears to hear his word. Imagine with me, it's your funeral. Pleasant thought, right? Well, let's just say you've lived for 50 years from now, you've had a long, rich, healthy life, you died peacefully in your sleep, and now it's your funeral. If that were the case, what do you hope people would say about you? What do you hope people will say about you? Not what do you fear people might say about you, or even what you might expect people will say about you, but when your life is spent and over, and your family, friends, acquaintances have gathered at your funeral, what do you hope people will say about you? I imagine that many of us would want people to say that we were hard workers at our jobs, or that we were faithful in providing for our families, or maybe that we were fun, just funny people to be around. Maybe that we were good neighbors, faithful Christians, good brothers and sisters, parents, spouses, very seriously, at the end of your life, what do you hope people will say about you at your funeral? Keep that thought in mind. You're going to have to trust me. We're going to come back to it at the conclusion. But keep that thought in mind. What do you hope people will say about you at your funeral? Well, it's with this that we introduce our sermon this morning on a vision for the family. I'm going to argue today that God is calling every Christian family to view itself like a little church where husbands are discipling wives, wives discipling husbands, parents discipling children, children discipling one another, grandparents discipling grandkids, and so forth. I want you to see the family as the primary context and the first place where you live out your Christianity, and more than that, the conduit through which the faith is passed on to the next generation. Youth pastors, Sunday school teachers, all of that can be extremely helpful, and we praise God for them. And yet, the Bible is very clear that the family ought to be the first and primary place where the faith is passed on. This sermon is the next installment in our little mini-series here, TBC Vision 2020. And hopefully you see a certain logic to this series. If you go back three weeks ago, we talked about personal Bible reading. I contended that every single Christian ought to set aside at least a little part of every day to prayerfully study God's Word. Last week, we talked about a vision for the Christian life, and I made the claim that every Christian ought to view himself or herself as a disciple-making disciple, speaking God's word in love into the lives of others. Today, we're talking about the family. You come back next week, and we're going to talk about how this fleshes itself out in an entire local church. But I hope you can see a series of concentric circles there, working from yourself, to your family, to your local church, and really, ultimately, to the ends of the earth. And to consider this topic, a vision for the family, I'd like you to consider three questions with me. Three questions which will hopefully equip you and inspire you to view your family as the first place, the primary place where you live out your Christianity. First, we're going to ask the question, what is family discipleship? 
Uh, you may have never heard this term before, so I'm going to try and explain this very clearly, practically. But what is family discipleship? Second, we're going to talk about what does the Bible say about family discipleship? And we're actually going to survey the entire Bible. We'll go quickly. Won't read every verse, obviously, but we'll survey the entire Bible to see what it has to say on this topic. And then finally, we'll dedicate a little bit of time talking about some strategies for family discipleship. How might you more practically make disciples in your home? And don't only think of your children. I know that some of us don't have children. I know that others of us, the children are grown and out of the house. But think of those basically in your household, biblically defined. That might be grandchildren, might be cousins, might be roommates in a college dorm. What can I do to influence those in my household toward Jesus? Well, let's talk about this first question. What is family discipleship? What on earth do I mean when I talk of family discipleship? What I want to do is give you a big, wordy definition, and then we're going to break it down. Okay, this is really the best way I could think of teaching this. I'm going to give you a long definition that you might want to jot down, but then I'm going to break it down basically phrase by phrase and talk through it. But when I mean family discipleship, I mean this. This is the responsibility of every Christian family to pursue growth together in godliness as a family. Family discipleship is normally overseen by the father and must be tailored to the unique needs of each family member, depending on their spiritual state, and by that I mean are they converted or not, born again or not, and level of maturity. Family discipleship takes place, play, takes place in both formal and informal contexts and should work in conjunction with, a, with local church involvement. I realize that's long and wordy. So let's break it down. First, I say family discipleship is the responsibility of every Christian family to pursue growth and godliness together as a family. Now, what I mean by this is that God is not only concerned with you as an individual. Certainly, he is concerned with you as an individual, but it's more than that. He's concerned with how you're influencing and interacting with your family members. You might illustrate what I'm getting at this way. Imagine you've got a grapevine of, you know, maybe five, ten different strands that have grown together. You ever seen one of these things? You know, kind of wrapped around a trellis. You know, all those different individual vines, they are individual vines, but they've become so interlocked and interconnected that you can't really address one without affecting the other. And, you know, say you were to chop the thing down, you'd probably chop down three or four at the same time. You understand what I'm getting at? Similarly, the Bible teaches that that sort of thing takes place in families. Obviously, families are made up of individuals, individuals who will give an account for their own souls before God. And yet the lives of those individuals are so intertwined, interconnected, that it creates almost this sort of tangled grapevine thing. They influence one another so deeply and so profoundly that you, you really can't address one without addressing the others. Husbands, your spiritual health is very much tied to that of your wife. Wives, your spiritual health is very much tied to that of your husband and your kids and your grandkids and your siblings. Obviously, the further you go out, the less it is, but there's very much a family thing going on there, inevitably. It's family discipleship. Second, we say in this definition that it's normally overseen by the father. This was just sort of taken for granted in Christian teaching for hundreds of years, but it's obviously being challenged today. I'm thinking that maybe we need to do a sermon series or a Bible study on this to clarify that, biblically speaking, the father is the head of the household. That's not just a hangover from 1950s culture. The Bible is very clear that the father really ought to view himself as the captain of the family. Uh, to use an illustration I've used before, every Christian father ought to view himself as the pastor of his family. 
And then those fathers who pastor their families well are going to be entrusted with pastoring local churches. Well, that obviously prompts the question, what do we do if the father is, say, absent or unsaved or unwilling? Maybe he's dead or in prison. What do we do then? Well, when that happens, and it does obviously happen, that's when the wife does need to step in and fill in the vacancy. Uh, she's got to think of a way to speak God's truth and love to the children and the grandchildren in a way that's still respectful of her husband. But still, this has to be going on in Christian families. While normally it's overseen by the father, it has to happen in some way. We say that it must be tailored to the unique needs of each family member, depending on their spiritual state and level of maturity. This, in a way, is simply common sense. You don't treat a 15-year-old like he's five. You don't treat an eight-year-old like she's 18. You don't expect things from non-Christians that only Christians can perform. You think through where is this family member at, and you tailor the discipleship accordingly. Finally, we say this takes place both in formal and informal contexts and should work in conjunction with local church involvement. We'll get into more of that later on in the sermon. But basically, it's both in the by and by of life and in more structured teaching contexts. And it ought to be supplemented by your local church. Now, I totally recognize that what we're talking about here is very much absent in many Christian families. Uh, in many Christian families, they think bringing your kids to church is basically the sum and substance of discipling your children. Uh, maybe saying grace before meals. Truth be told, just to confess my sins, that's the kind of family I was raised in. We went to church every Sunday, we said grace before meals, and that was about it. But what I'm going to try to persuade you of this morning is that God is offering your family so much more uh, for your good, for the salvation of your kids, and for the glory of God. God is offering you so much more. And not only that, and there's both a positive and a negative, he is offering you more, but there are also fearful consequences to those who neglect this area of life. In the long run, you will sorely regret neglecting family discipleship. Well, that's what we mean by family discipleship. Now, let's turn to the Bible. What does God's Word say about this? And like I said, I want to survey the entire Bible. We will go quickly. This will only take about 10 minutes or so, give or take. But we'll go quickly and move through the entire storyline of Scripture to see that this has been always God's ex expectation. And this is not some, you know, little quirky thing in Deuteronomy 6 or some unusual thing in Ephesians 6. No, this actually is throughout the entire storyline of Scripture. And when you see that, you realize how powerful and how weighty this responsibility is. We'll begin at the beginning with Genesis. God makes Adam and whom? Eve. And God gives to Adam and Eve a command, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now here's something to think about. When did God give Adam and Eve that command? Before Eve was created or after Eve was created? Go check it out. It was actually before Eve was created that he said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does that mean? That means that Adam's got to communicate this command to Eve. He's got to teach Eve the word of God. This is how you walk with God. This is how you please God. That's actually where family worship begins. Well, obviously, Adam and Eve, they sin. They rebel against God. But then they have kids, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. And what's the first thing we see Cain and Abel doing in Scripture? They're worshiping God through sacrifices. Now, where in the world did they learn to do that? Didn't learn it from priests, didn't learn it from Sunday school teachers, didn't learn it from youth pastors. It must have been their parents who taught them, this is how we worship and please God, through sacrifices. We move on. Think of the story of Noah. Noah is the only righteous man in his day, except for also his family. 
Now think about that. Was it just a coincidence that his family turned out to be righteous? No, I think what's going on is that part of why Noah was righteous was because he was concerned with the spiritual welfare of his kids. And that's why God spared not only Noah, but his children in the flood. Next stop in the storyline of Scripture, Job. You remember Job, again, most righteous man in his generation. What's one of the first things we see Job doing? He's making sacrifices on behalf of his children. You remember that? He's deeply concerned with the spiritual welfare of his kids. Check out Job 1.5 if you want to check me on this. But he's doing whatever he can to make sure that his kids are rightly related to the Lord. Family discipleship. We keep going. We think about Abraham. And listen to what Genesis 18.19 says about our father Abraham. The Lord said, I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now in this verse, God tells us exactly why he has chosen Abraham. You remember, Abraham's the special friend of God. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. And yet in this verse, we know why God has chosen Abraham. It's because he'll command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Do you hear that? That is family discipleship. There's just something interesting to note. It's only Abraham who's mentioned in this verse. He's married to Sarah, and obviously Sarah has a huge role to play in the plan of God, but for some reason he focuses on Abraham. Why is that? Let's keep going. Deuteronomy 6. We already read this in the service, but listen again to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And hear what God is calling his people to do. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In this passage, God envisions all the families of Israel passing on the knowledge of God through families. And you'll notice in that passage, it's both in formal context and informal context. You know, you both put billboards up and signs up with Bible verses on them, and you go about as you milk the cow and as you mow the lawn, talking about the things of the Lord. It's family discipleship. Keep going. Joshua 4. The people of Israel, they enter the promised land, and as they cross the Jordan, they're to take 12 stones and put them in a heap. You remember this? And what was the purpose of that heap of stones? Joshua 4.21, Joshua said to the people, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, what do these stones mean? You shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. You see that pile of stones, it was a memorial, but it was more than a memorial. It was a teaching opportunity. Your children will say, hey, Dad, what's up with this big pile of stones? And that's the opportunity for you to say, son, well, let me tell you, this is what the Lord did for us. Again, you'll notice in that passage, it's particularly fathers. Not priests, not prophets, not Sunday school teachers, as helpful as they were in the plan of God. Fathers teaching their children. This is actually everywhere. I'm sort of condensing a lot of material. We could talk about this for weeks. But Psalm 78.5, this was part of our call to worship today. The Lord established the testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. You may have caught this as we read this passage in the call to worship. There are several generations there, not just your kids, 
but your kids turning around and teaching them to their kids. How about Malachi 2.14? And this is in response to the question, why does God give parents children? You ever wonder about that? Why does God give parents kids? Is it only to dress them up nice and put pictures of them on Facebook? Malachi 2.14, did not God make the man and wife one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Very clearly, the reason why God gives you children, especially if you're a Christian, is so that you'd raise them up in the discipline and the nurture of the Lord. That's why you've got kids. You move on to the New Testament, and really nothing changes. This is not just this Old Testament Hebrew thing. This is the plan of God thing, and you see it definitely in the New Testament. The family is still the first and the primary place where children are to be the disciple. You can think of Jesus in this regard. Jesus is brought to the temple to be circumcised by his parents. Later on, when Jesus is 12, he's back in the temple, brought there by his parents. And he's there, remember, and he's debating with the Pharisees and so forth. You can think of Timothy in this regard. Timothy is interesting because he did not have a believing father, which I know is the truth, the case for some families here. But it's his mother, his grandmother, they were godly Christians, and they were the ones who taught Timothy the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.15, from childhood you have been known, you've been acquainted with the sacred scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In the event you're still not convinced of this, right here in Ephesians 6, we read it earlier, explicitly calling us to disciple our kids. You know, in the event previous scripture wasn't enough, here's one command that's pretty evident. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the nurture of the Lord. Just by way of passing, you'll notice there that it doesn't say parents, does it? It doesn't say parents bring your children up. What does it say? It says fathers. Now, is this because a mother's role is insignificant or optional? Obviously not. The mother's role is vital, essential, unique. And yet throughout Scripture, it's always the husband's unique responsibility to take the lead, to be, again, sort of like the pastor of the family. He used to be like Abraham, to command his children and his household after him to keep the ways of the Lord. Now just pause and kind of summarize in your mind all that we've looked at here. You know, I realize I've given you a lot of information in a short amount of time, but think about this. We've looked at passages coming from all parts of Scripture. We've looked at the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've looked at passages that apply to individuals, to the nation of Israel, and to the church. We've looked at the examples of Abraham, Joshua, and Timothy. And in all of that, what is the common denominator? It's this clear call to family worship. God has always, he continues to expect today, every Christian family, to pursue growth and godliness together as a family. This is normally, ideally, overseen by the Father, and it needs to be tailored to the unique needs of each family member. And this is a responsibility that should take place in both formal and informal contexts and work in conjunction with a local church. Does that seem to be a fair summary of what we've seen? There's a book out there that I'd really encourage you to read. It's called God, Marriage, and Family by a guy named Andres Kostenberger. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that we've got to sort of rebuild some of these things that Christians have taken for granted for so long. You know, what a family is, what a father is. This book does a superb job doing that. And after surveying basically the entirety of Scripture, listen to what he says. He writes the Pentateuch, the Old Testament historical books, 
and the book of Psalms are pervaded by the consciousness that parents, and especially fathers, must pass on their religious heritage to their children. God's express will for his people Israel is still his will for God's people in the church today. Christian parents have the mandate and serious obligation to instill their religious heritage in their children. This heritage centers on the personal experience of God's deliverance from sin and his revelation in the, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for us on the cross. Christian parents ought to take every opportunity to speak about these all-important matters with their children and to express and impart to their children personal gratitude for what God has done to their children. While there may be Christian Sunday school teachers and other significant people in a child's life, parents must never go back on their God-given responsibility to be the primary source of religious instruction for their children. Now, maybe you're wondering, you know, why is this thing necessary at all? You know, why in the world do we need to raise kids up in the discipline and the nurture of the Lord? Aren't they kind of like little flowers already? Aren't they little angels? You know, why would we need to do this? Well, this leads us to something called the gospel. And if you get the gospel, you'll understand why discipling your children is necessary. You understand God has made us all in his image, made us to know him, made us to reflect his character made us to love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, made us to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's how we were designed. And yet the truth of it is we all rebel and turn from God. We separate ourselves from God. So what that means is that every child enters this world already cut off from God. Understand that that was true for me, true for you, true for every child in existence, already born, cut off from God. What that means is that they need to have the gospel communicated to them so that they can come to know God and be rightly reconciled to God. And I'd say the same thing to you. If you're an adult, and if you've never put your hope in Jesus, turned from your sins, put your hope in Jesus, you're cut off from God today. You're separated from God today. And if you die in that state, you'll be eternally separated from God in that real place called hell. Well, these were the dire circumstances we found ourselves in, but God had mercy on us. He loved us, and in his great love, he sent his son to earth. Who's his son? Jesus. Jesus takes on flesh and walks among us. He is God incarnate. And he grows up and goes through all the different phases of ordinary human development that we go through. He's a baby, toddler, maybe imagine Jesus this way. Young man, adult man, going through all the different stages of obedience. And he never sins. He never cuts himself off from God. He has a three-year ministry that's still changing the world today. You know, think about that. A humble Galilean carpenter for three years, and 2,000 years later, people are still talking about it. That's Jesus. But then he does die on the cross. And here's what's happening on the cross. That's where he's separated from God. You know, the separation that we experience because of our sin, he experiences that for us in our place on the cross. Just like you and I deserve to be eternally separated from God, that's what's going on on the cross. Jesus dies saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here's the good news. Three days later, God raises him back from the dead. He ascends to heaven where he's ruling and reigning today. And one day he's coming to judge. And here's the glorious truth of the gospel. Embrace Jesus now, be reunited with God. Embrace Jesus now, be reconciled to your creator and enter back into that relationship you were made for. This is why the gospel must be communicated to our children, and this is why you must believe the gospel if you desire to be right with God. So as always, I beg of you to trust in Jesus today. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus today. Put no hope in your good works. Your good works on your best day are still filthy rags. Put your hope in Jesus and be made right with him today. 
And as always, if any of you would like clarification on these things, need somebody to pray with you, pray for you, please talk to me after today's service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today, and today be made right with God. Let's talk about a final question. We've talked about what family discipleship is. We've talked about what the Bible says on this topic. Let's talk lastly about some strategies for family discipleship. And for the sake of time, I'm only going to talk about one strategy here. I know that it's in the plural up there, and I intended to talk about a bunch, uh, but this would have turned into an hour at least, so we're going to cut it down a little bit. And truth be told, I've talked on this topic many times before. If you want more teaching on this topic, go to our website and just look up any sermon containing the words family, family discipleship. We've talked about a wide variety of topics about catechizing your children, formal Bible teaching, about attending Christian camps, about building a comprehensive Christian worldview, scripture memory programs. I mean, we've talked about a lot over the years in this area. So again, if you want to check any of that out, go to our website. But for today, I'm going to simply commend to you something that I've come to really dearly love, family worship. Family worship. Now, by family worship, what I mean is families gathering together, ideally every day, to worship God as a family. You could imagine it almost like a little church service that maybe lasts 7, 10, 12 minutes. Just to give you an example to illustrate this, you know, maybe you have dinner with your family, and before everybody breaks up and heads away, you say, all right, does anybody have prayer requests? And, you know, depending on the age of your kids, they share prayer requests. Uh, You know, Billy twisted his ankle in gym, and, you know, Susie's dog died, and Aunt, uh, Aunt, Aunt Susie has cancer. Just share a prayer request, and then, okay, family, let's pray together. Spend maybe two or three minutes praying. Then you get your Bible out, and you read a paragraph of Scripture. Let's just say the Gospel of John. Read a paragraph, and you ask, hey, what stuck out to you? What do you remember? Did you notice anything? Then, this is key, pray after you've read Scripture for help to trust and obey it. And then if you feel so inclined, maybe sing a Christian song or a hymn. You know, what do you guys want to sing? Somebody will say... Amazing Grace, somebody says in Christ alone, you spend maybe a minute or two singing a Christian song. That's really it. It's not complicated. It's it's seriously not that time-consuming. But realize if you do that regularly, just five minutes a day, what do you think that will do to your kids' hearts over 18, 20 years? That will teach them what's of first importance. Now, I totally recognize that this is not common in Christian families today. Like I said, I did not grow up in a family that did this. But what I've discovered is that this was the norm in generations past. If we had a time machine, and we were to go to, say, let's say 16th century Germany, family worship was the norm. If we were to go to, say, 18th century Philadelphia, family worship among Christian families was the norm. 19th century London, in all likelihood, that family, if they were a believing family, would be doing Christian worship, uh, family worship. And the family that didn't, people would be like, what's up with that family? You think about it, in one sense, this is how youth ministry took place for hundreds of years. We know that youth pastors are a relatively modern invention. Not that they're bad, they can be extremely helpful, but we know that they're a modern a relatively modern thing. How was youth ministry going on in the 19th century, 18th century, 17th century? It was largely through parents and grandparents passing on the faith. Now, the benefits of family worship are many. And I just want to give you four or five, depending on time. Two from a guy named uh, James Alexander and a couple from my own experience. But James Alexander, he writes this about family worship. What families regard as important 
is evidenced by the manner in which they spend their time. Is that true? Absolutely true. Therefore, regular family worship shows the children that their parents believe that Jesus Christ is central to all of life. This practice leaves a legacy that will benefit thousands and generations to come. You see, your kids will inevitably and almost automatically pick up what you think is important. It just happens. If you, say, prioritize watching football every single week, they will grow up thinking football is pretty important. Uh, if you prioritize complaining about the government every single week, they'll think complaining about the government is pretty important. They just sort of absorb this. It's inevitable. Similarly, if you prioritize the worship of the true and living God, even just five minutes a day, they'll catch this is really important. It's really important to know God and to please him. To think about this idea kind of in the reverse, in one sense, every family does family worship. They just don't always worship the Lord. Understand what I mean? In one sense, every family does a family worship of a sort. They don't just worship the true living God. For some family, their families, their family worship is, say, watching Wheel of Fortune every single night or criticizing the president every single night or watching the Colts every Sunday. You see they're worshiping something, and their kids are picking up on that and imbibing it, but it's just not the true and living God. So the question is not, will you engage in family worship, but it's will you engage in the worship of the true and living God? See what I'm saying? Let me give you a second benefit of regular family worship. Again, James Alexander. And by the way, get this book. He wrote a whole book on family worship, and it's outstanding. Um, but if you want more on this, check out his book. But he writes this. Nothing will spur a father toward godly spiritual discipleship in his own walk with Christ more than leading his family in worship. In order to teach his wife and children, he will have to study the scriptures on his own. A godly woman will be encouraged and inspired as she sees her husband take responsibility and lead in family worship. This practice sets a tone of harmony and love in the household and is a source of strength when they go through affliction together. As they pray for each other, their mutual love will be strengthened. I know a lot of guys feel very discontent with their walk with the Lord. They feel kind of stunted, kind of spiritually cold. Well, maybe, just maybe, what you need to jumpstart your walk with the Lord is to start taking family discipleship and specifically family worship more seriously. This could be that which ignites your passion for God. Now, if I could add my own word of testimony here, my family, we've done family worship basically every single day since my kids were born. And by the way, feel free to ask my kids about this to get their perspective. That might be interesting. But what I've seen is the way in which God uses this to draw the family more closely together. Seriously, I mean, imagine the benefit to your family. If every single day you had like a little family meeting, it's really good for your family. And I know I've made this comment before. It sounds odd, but even if there weren't a God, I'd probably still do family worship for the way that it knits the family together. Now, obviously there is a God, so it's, I mean, that's a kind of a good benefit too. But it does. It blesses your family and brings them closer together. With my own sons, I'm trying to train them so that when they're fathers and husbands, this will just be normal routine. Uh, just, you know, as, as much as I'm teaching them how to mow the lawn or how to do little fix-it projects around the house, I'm teaching them that when you guys become husbands and fathers, do family worship. For my daughters, I am praying basically every single day that they'll marry men who are committed to doing this, uh, prioritizing worshiping God. Here's another benefit to family worship. It'll also enhance your worship here on Sunday. It will enhance your worship on Sunday. If your kids find Sunday worship boring, probably because you're not worshiping much at home. If you find 
worship boring on Sundays? Probably because you're not worshiping God much at home. You know, it's comparable to a football team. So a football team didn't practice all week long. They just sat around and watched TV and ate Doritos. Would they play very well on Sunday? Not at all. So also, if you're not engaging with God regularly throughout the week, and not only you individually, but your entire family, you're going to be like sluggish couch potatoes on Sunday. One more benefit, and this one I just kind of thought of on the fly. This can also grow you as a Bible teacher. I know that a lot of guys want to teach the Bible, but they don't feel very good at it. They feel kind of scared. They're like, you know, I don't know if I can do this. Practice with your wife and kids. Maybe let that be the first place where you try this stuff out. And as you grow from there, you can then take on, say, a Sunday school class or a Wednesday night Bible study. There are many, many benefits to family worship. I'd, I'd commend it to you. Now, obviously, I can't say all that could be said on this topic here, but if you'd like to think more about this, the book I'd recommend is Family Worship by Donald Whitney. Family Worship by Donald Whitney. We do have a copy of this in the library. We also have an audio version of it. So if you don't like to read, first repent, but then get the audio version, and you can get the same content that way. Well, to wrap up our time this morning and to conclude this, I hope you've caught the way in which family discipleship is an emphasis throughout Scripture. This is literally everywhere. And really, no matter how you go about it, it's undeniably the parent's responsibility to communicate the truth of God to the next generation. That's doubly true for you if you're a father. And very seriously, I say that if you're neglecting this now, there will come a day when you will regret your neglect either in this life or in the life to come. So parents, and especially fathers, I ask you, what are you doing to bring your kids up in the discipline and the nurture of the Lord? Have you even thought through how I'm going to do this intentionally? Grandparents, have you thought of your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews? Can you at least just start praying for them every day? When they come over, maybe you have Bible storybooks to read to them. Have you taken the time, parents, to share the gospel with your kids, grandparents with your grandkids? I mean, if we are concerned with their eternal souls, why wouldn't we tell them of the only way to be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus? Are the members of your household more knowledgeable of God's word, more like Jesus because of your influence? Now, certainly such questions are ones that can make us guilty, feel condemned, you know, especially if this is something you've been neglecting for years. It's so easy to feel condemned, guilty, worthless. So we praise God for the blood of Jesus. His blood cleanses us from all sin. And if your hope is in him, you are forgiven of all of your sins, including sins as a parent, grandparent. And yet, nonetheless, if this is something we're persuaded that we should be doing, I call upon you this morning to recommit yourself to this duty. Maybe this afternoon, get alone and in quiet prayer, recommit yourself to doing what you can to disciple your spouse, disciple your kids, disciple your grandkids, disciple your nieces, nephews, people in your sphere of influence. Maybe talk to somebody you think is doing okay in this area and ask them for advice. But without a doubt, God is calling you and God will hold you responsible to disciple your household. Now, to conclude this morning, I bring you back to that question I asked at the beginning of our time together. Remember that question? Imagine it's 50 years from today, you've lived a long, healthy life, died peacefully in your sleep, and now it's your funeral. 
at your funeral, what do you hope people are going to say about you? How do you hope your friends, relatives, neighbors, siblings remember you? I have no idea how you may have answered that question, but I want you to consider this testimony from Pastor Joel Beakey. He writes this. I, I find this kind of fascinating and, and inspiring myself. He says, when my parents commemorated their 50th anniversary, all five of us children decided to express thanks to our father and mother for one thing without consulting each other. Remarkably, all five of us thanked our mother for her prayers, and all five of us thanked our father for his leadership of our Sunday evening family worship. My brother said, Dad, Dad, the oldest memory I have is of tears streaming down your face as you taught us from Pilgrim's Progress on Sunday evenings how the Holy Spirit leads believers. At the age of three, God used you in family worship to convict me that Christianity was real. No matter how far I went astray in later years, I could never seriously question the reality of Christianity, and I want to thank you for that. How would you feel if something like that were said about you at your funeral? Or maybe your 50th wedding anniversary. Is that how you would you want your children, spouse, grandchildren, siblings to remember you? If so, what steps do you need to take this week to recommit yourself to this duty? What steps do you need today? What steps do you need to commit yourself to this morning that your family will be a family characterized by family discipleship, a family bringing glory to God? pray together. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, sometimes it's hard to preach your word. Uh, the standard is high. Uh, our hearts are so sinful. Uh, the consequences are so enormous. Lord, we do feel our sins and the way that we've broken your laws and made a mess of things and failed sometimes for years. We confess this to you. But we do thank you for the blood of Jesus and for the way that he saves to the uttermost all those who come to him through faith. And yet, Lord, so long as there's life, there's time, there's hope. So please help us from this point forward to prioritize this duty, to love our family members, to speak your truth and love into their lives, to be burdened for the souls of our spouses, kids, grandkids. And please, O oh Lord, use us to see people come to faith in Christ and then to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son. It's through Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen.